Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsession will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dark down for a while. Hi, it's Jackie Cation. Welcome to the dark forest. You know the websites: JackieCation.com, DorkForest.com, TheDorkForest.com. Of course, if you love a determiner. And it is December. In December, you do not donate to the Dork Forest. You donate to your local food bank. That's right. Find a food bank. Go to feedingamerica.org if you're in America. And there is, uh, it's a link. There'll be a link to, to that on the notes at essentially dorkforest.com, which is allthingscomedy.com as well, which is the podcast network. Aaron Foley's, uh, podcast is going to join over there at, uh, Sports Without Balls. And it's a sports podcast uh, where two ladies, uh, Aaron Foley and Rebecca Corey, talk about sports. I uh, She asked me to be on, and then she realized that I could not be on because I don't know anything about sports. Um, she can come back on the Dork Forest to talk about sports, but it doesn't work the other way. So donate to a food bank uh, every other month. Donate to the Dork Forest. What the heck? And if you still want merch for Christmas or for uh, Solstice or for Armenian Christmas, you can go to the merch store on JackieCation.com and get T-shirts and CDs and hooded sweatshirts. I have them in stock. I have hooded sweatshirts, all sizes, in stock for the season. What the heck? And this month, we have another sponsor. Remember, you can you could be a sponsor. And that's what Leanne Olson, who was on one of the last episodes of The Dork Forest of Gigiana.com, decided she wanted to sponsor the Dork Forest for a month. So know in your hearts that Leanne Olson is a crafty, crafty dork, and she has a business called geekiana.com where she prints T-shirts and sweatshirts and scarves and posters, and it's all dork-related. It's nerdy. It's geeky. It's geekiana.com. So she also has her own podcast. You can listen up to that and order up on that, geekiana.com. My personal favorite, Watership Downton Abbey, the T-shirt. And I think there's also a poster, and you should get that. So let's do the credits. Mike Rickberg sang that song you just heard. He's going to sing the Mexican hat dance at the end. He composed that. He sang in the beginning with Sarah Cohen, his girlfriend. That's right. Patrick Brady, going to fix this audio, does a vital work. And uh, he also does the YouTube teasers that are on YouTube.com slash The Dork Forest. And... Vilmos fixes the website. That's right. JackieCation.com is done by Braniac. I think it's spelled, it's on the bottom of JackieCation.com. Link to that if you have any website needs. And other than that, let us begin. Hello and welcome to the Dork Forest. Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. Welcome back. Thanks very much. This is awesome. I, uh, I was very excited. We haven't talked since before the first Hobbit movie came out. That's right. And, um, I listened to a lot of the speculation. I listened to 11 hours of you guys speculating. <laughs> that's what like, for, for us, that's like two episodes or something. I know. <laughs> no offense, but yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so let's just do, let's do the business part of it because people should definitely listen to the iterations of the Tolkien professor that are out there. Plus, you've got Mythgard. Correct. Which is Mythgard. Like an online class-taking event? It is indeed, yes. It is uh, It is part of a newly formed, or perhaps I should more accurately say newly forming, uh, completely independent online university, which is 
designed to do new and awesome things with higher education. But Mythgard is within that, uh, the sort of super awesome institute uh, for online learning focused on fantasy and science fiction literature. Ah, which is the best part. Exactly. For me. For me. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's so great. It was, I remember I took a, um, a Tolkien class in, well, it was Tolkien, I think I might have told you this the last episode, but it was C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and, uh, Charles Williams? Charles Williams, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a class on their, their works. Cool. And, um, it was available in 1986 as a, as, as a, as an opportunity, uh, to study those things as literature. Excellent. Which is, Excellent. Yeah, it was amazing because nobody thought of it as literature except for that one guy. Yeah, and at the University right. of Wisconsin. That's very fortunate. <laughs> I was. I felt very because I I haven't been able to finish the Silmarillion since. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have listened to all of your Silmarillion lectures, which are also available. So if they go to uh, what, what's the best sort of gateway? Website that people can find everything. Right. Well, there are basically the two. There's uh, TolkienProfessor.com, um, which okay. is the site I started with my podcast back in 2009. And through that, you can get access to, and of course, the the iTunes feed for the Tolkien Professor. You can get access through the several hundred different episodes that I've done, and I've done a bunch of different right. things: lecture series, the Silmarillion seminar recordings, the uh, a couple of Middle English. Yeah, there was a exactly. there was a great series on Middle. English yeah. that I learned all about. Yeah, there's uh, and the Riddles in the Dark series, which is the movie speculation and discussion and analysis yes. series. Um, so you know those are all kind of mixed in together uh, on my Tolkien Professor podcast feed. The other place, of course, is through Mythgard.org. Uh, M y t h g a r d dot org. That's the main site for the Mythgard Institute, and you can find there not only information on our actual courses, which we're running uh, all the time, but you can get recordings of previous classes, and you can get. Um, uh, also, there's a series of free courses that we're running. Our MythGuard courses do charge tuition because they're taught by real faculty members to whom oh, I, cool. I want to pay real money. Um, yep. So there's actual actual tuition. So this is, you know, you can actually take a university course taught by some of the greatest, coolest professors in the world. Uh, I mean, for Tolkien people, I mean, if, if, you, yeah. if you know Tolkien studies, um, we just finished this past fall semester. A course on philology and Tolkien with Tom Shippey. Um, so you know if you, if you know if you how do you spell Shippey? S H I P P E Y. Oh, good for him. Tom Shippey is uh, is is just one of the. He's like the godfather of Tolkien studies. The guy who actually okay. got Tolkien's job at Oxford when Tolkien retired, um, oh. and uh, you know has written some of the greatest works uh, on Tolkien out there. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the Century, uh, The Road to Middle Earth. Um, he's just absolutely fantastic. People who are fans of the Peter Jackson films and have watched all of the uh, extra documentaries might remember Tom yeah. Shippey as that bald guy. Uh, <laughs> he was on those. Uh, anyway, Shippey is fantastic. Aren't we all eventually that bald guy? <laughs> well, you know, as, it's my as personal aspiration, and I have to say, <laughs> I think I might attain that aspiration. I'm really excited. Uh, it's I'm, one of the, I'm looking forward to it in my late 70s. <laughs> it's, it's, one of the few, uh, it's one of my few life goals I expect to actually attain. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's basically, MythGuard was designed to be able to bring... Uh, 
the opportunity to study Tolkien and, and other works of fantasy and science fiction with some of the greatest scholars from around the world. A lot of people just don't have that chance. Either they went to a college which was less enlightened than yours uh, and didn't sure. have the chance or, you know, just have been out of school for a long time now and, and really wish they could go back and study again. Um, it's been right. it's, it's been a fantastic thing. We've been going now two and a half years uh, and it's been a really great group of students that has been uh, going through our program and, and taking classes or just auditing them for fun. Been really awesome. I, I have a very pr- uh, pragmatic question or practical question, which is uh, do and I don't care about credits. I already, right. I already have a degree. I'm good. Uh, but, uh, are they transferable at all? Or is it, is it so far as it, is it learning for learning's sake, which I am entirely in favor of? Right. Uh, basically some, both, we are in the accreditation process. We're accredited. It's, it, okay. it is not a short and simple process, uh, unfortunately. Oh, oh I, yeah. <laughs> but we are, we are in the middle of it and have been making, uh, progress in it. I expect the full accredi- accreditation process. To, well, okay. I probably shouldn't even give a date because it's not actually. Yeah, in my don't hand. give a date. I don't know how, I don't know how long day. it will take them. Uh, but one day. Uh, quite soon, I hope it, sh- it, it shall okay. be finished. We've been engaged in this for now a couple of years. Um, so now before that time, the credits aren't automatically transferable. Um, after that, time they will be. So for people who are looking just to take one or two classes and transfer them into their current degree programs, that's probably, probably that's not going to work out immediately. Might, right. might be able to be workable in a couple of years, but probably not right now. For people. Well, just think of all the information you'll get. I know. Just take well, a class and you know, learn stuff. For people who are interested in starting the degree and wondering if it will be, you know, sort of count as an accredited degree after the fact, yes. Yeah, that, okay. that will, so. Anyway, it's been really fun. You can get a master's degree in literature and language and, you know, study Tolkien and, and, and read science fiction and, and, you know, learn philology and study languages and it's really cool. Yeah. You know, I remember on one of the episodes where you were talking about how that, that Tolkien believed the only way to study philology was to move to Germany <laughs> in 1912. Right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> the only rigorous so. way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, 1912 no longer available. <laughs> so, uh, we'll, we'll be moving forward. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, I, I like, I like to get all that business stuff out of the way so that we can talk about the Hobbit. Absolutely. Uh, sweet, sweet Hobbit. Uh, I enjoyed the first movie a great deal, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I've, I've read the book probably not as, not as many times as some people, you know, I, I don't read it every year like I read to, uh, the Lord of the Rings because I was, I, I was actually prejudiced against it in that class because the guy told me that The Hobbit was a children's book. Right. And so I had put childish things behind me. Exactly. And so I only reread The Lord of the Rings when right. I should have been rereading The Hobbit as well. Um, well, but let, yeah, that's something I think is, is quite common actually, you know, that I, I, I've met a lot of Tolkien fans who are, you know, very serious fans, but don't like the Hobbit all that much because, and frankly, it is different. I mean, for the same reason, for instance, that I find lots of Lord of the Rings fans who I don't really like chapters one through three or four. Of the uh, Fellowship of the uh, Ring as much. Cause you know, you'll notice like that, that, you know, Bilbo's farewell party and especially yeah. chapter three, the, um, you know, the three's company when you know, Mary and Pippin and Sam are, are walking through the Shire. Um, yeah. the tone and the, you know, the sort of the narrative tone is very different from the rest of the Lord of the Rings. You know, it hasn't yeah. really kind of fully grown up yet. Um, and it, it's very much in the mode of the Hobbit. 
a lot of people who have really come to love, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the high, uh, you know, epic drama of the rest of the Lord of the Rings get uncomfortable with right. that and dislike the Hobbit entirely. And I can understand that. And actually, you know what? Uh, those people have a strong ally because Tolkien hated it too. Um, you know, he wrote later on <laughs> in his life by the mid fifties, he was already saying he regretted the Hobbit and wished he hadn't done it that way. Um, you know, and, and felt in retrospect like he'd been kind of selling out to write it as a children's book at all. Um, oh. now, you know, and the thing is, I actually don't agree with Tolkien. I mean, I, I you know, I, 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 I hear what he's saying. Like, I, I, I get it, but I actually think that what he did in The Hobbit works better than he's given it credit for, uh, in yeah. retrospect. But anyway, you know, so yes, I, like, I, I, I do recognize the fact The Hobbit isn't everybody's bag and that's okay. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, I, we, just because, like, like I, res- I, I, I love my father dearly. That doesn't mean that every decision he's made, I have to agree with. <laughs> so, uh, so I have this to say, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, there are a couple of decisions you made that I didn't enjoy, but on the most part, I loved all of them. Exactly. So, exactly. Peter Jackson, yeah. we have more problems. But I actually, I do like The Hobbit better than Lord of the Rings, which I know that I am alone. No, not quite no. alone. I, I do too. I do too. Okay. I do too. So, What's, what, now, what, what was the, what was, what, what do you think is the difference? What, what did you love about it a little bit more? What I love about the Hobbit films compared to the Lord of the Rings films, and one thing that I want to say at the very beginning is I am not a film critic. I'm not even a very frequent film watcher, frankly. I'm not a movie <laughs> guy. I just, I don't really have. This is not legal advice. I, no words. Exactly, exactly. So. You are not a lawyer. I, no. But, and, what this means is that I often like things that bother people about movies and people we want to talk about whether it's a good movie or whether things in it are well done. I'm wholly ignorant uh, and apparently have no taste. So I'm fine with that and it's okay. To me, when I'm looking at these f- films, of course, I'm only thinking about one thing, which is the story and how the story from the books are being adapted. Um, right. That's that's almost the, the, the beginning and end of, uh, of what I'm thinking about watching <laughs> these films. And on that level, okay. I find the Hobbit uh, films far superior to the Lord of the Rings films. Even though the Lord of the Rings films might be considered by movie people better movies, um, the adaptation of the story is much more thoughtful and much more intimately engaged with the text than the Lord of the Rings films were. Just to give one simple example, um, one simple example of a kind of thing I have not found anywhere in the Hobbit films is the choice that they did in the Lord of the Rings films to make Aragorn an unwilling hero. You know, his whole like, oh, right. like I'm all torn and I can't be king. I remember sitting there watching the Fellowship of the Ring film in the movie theater. And when that scene first came up, when, when, uh, when, when, He's standing in that, in that, in front of the sword that's in shards. That, yeah. that scene? Well, no, 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 no. In the, in the Council of Elrond. First of all, when, oh. when, when Boromir recognizes him and, and Boromir turns and says, Aragorn. And I'm like, wait, what? Boromir recognizes Thanks. him? What's going on? And then, and yeah. then, and then, and then somebody, who is it? Boromir who says you turn from, he's a, who, no, Aragorn says I turned from that path long ago. And I'm like, what is going on? I feel like I was having an out of body experience. I'm like, I have no idea where I am <laughs> yeah. right now. You know, yeah. and, you know, but that, that Aragorn would have turned away from the kingship and doesn't want it. And I'm like, what? But basically the, 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 but that wasn't just sort of a characterization choice. Like to me, that wasn't even like the Faramir choice. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to take Faramir and we're going to make him less awesome. It wasn't even just that, though it was related to that. 
Basically, right. it's the we're going to take the highest, greatest heroes of the book and we're going to try to bring them all down to human level uh, so that so we, that can, we relate can build to some them. sort of weird it's, arc. Well, yeah, exactly. And so that we that as flawed it, humans can relate to them. Or, this seems to be uh, a, 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 a very serious um, a very error. serious error. Yeah, very serious. <laughs> yeah. Error. I mean, we I, I you know, my my sense of the Lord of the Rings as books is that we come into these books um, and we're looking at the action of the Lord of the Rings from the Hobbit's viewpoint. And this is not only literally true in this, in the sense that, you know, they're supposed to have written the narrative, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. book is, it comes from Bilbo and Frodo's writings, but you know, that we basically, we're, we're seeing this whole story from about three feet off the ground. So, you know, when we're looking up at Aragorn and Faramir and, 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 and even Boromir and Aemir, yeah. certainly Gandalf, they, are twice as tall as we are. I mean, we're not supposed to be reading about right, Aragorn the same saying level. like, oh yeah, that's me, man. Like, I totally sympathize with everything <laughs> Aragorn is feeling. No, he's a hero. You know, he's somebody yeah. somebody that you look up to, not somebody that you identify with. Merriam Pip and I identify with, but not but not Aragorn. And that's, you know, that's not just okay. That's good. That's how the story works. So that, yeah. that choice to take everything... And that, that, that movie was peppered. Yes. The movie was peppered with those choices, exactly. which, which was, I wanted Frodo to be the hero. I didn't, you know, I wanted Aragorn to acknowledge his own, his own destiny as he did in the book. And I wanted Faramir to, to be the hero that he was. Right. And, and Eowyn and all of it. It was just, it was unfortunate. Even, but. Even Treebeard was made into a fool. Yeah, um, as but as a sword and sorcery fancy willow, I'm okay with it. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I, I, you know, there, and there are many things to like about what the films did. But basically, my point is, I don't see any equivalent in the Hobbit films to that kind of choice. That kind of choice right? was sort of a framework like the kind of story we're telling in the Lord of the Rings films is in this way going to be a fundamentally different kind of story than the story. Uh, in the- yeah, it felt like Peter Jackson actually got the world. Absolutely, absolutely, and. You know, like throughout um, watching the Lord of the Rings films, there are a bunch of places where my response as somebody who knows the books really well is, you know, that seems really kind of confused or they're really, you know, I can immediately think of like a whole bunch of scenes or passages that they seem to be ignoring or just sort of wanting to ignore. And I can, right. I, I can be okay with that. You know, I can be okay with that and move on. But I was conscious of it in the Hobbit films. By contrast, what I keep having is exactly the opposite experience where in almost every scene, I can think of all the passages in the text that they're getting it from, that they're thinking about. They might be taking it in a direction I wouldn't have. Um, right. They might be, they <laughs> might be, you know, doing something a little unexpected, but nevertheless, I can see, so, you know, the, where in the story they get this from, you know, I, I, right. and, and, and I kept finding lines from the book and phrases from the book kind of jumping into my head, even at, even at kind of unexpected yeah. moments, um, when they're doing something weird. Um, but you know, which again, I think, you know, this was very much my impression after the first film and even more strongly my impression after the second film, they are doing their homework so much more diligently and so much more carefully as far as the text is concerned in the second great. set of films. That's definitely my, my, you know, opinion I, of these films. 
now, do you think, I mean, I think just the casting of Martin Freeman is oh, so much my better goodness. than, than Elijah Wood, yeah. He's yeah. just a child. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's just, he was too young to play, to play Frodo. Yeah, I mean, he was and, kind of good for the naive Frodo that they wanted. Um, yeah. But of course, as you, you know, that's, was one of the problems, or rather it was a problem of that same kind, you know, to turn Frodo into the, the becoming wise 50 year old guy that he is in the fellowship ring much older and wiser than Mary and Pippin to the youngest, not only technically the youngest, but visually and obviously the youngest uh, of the party. I mean, he looks like the baby of the entire, he was the baby of the entire, Uh, not just of the hobbits, but of everybody. So, you know, it's like, you know, when Frodo, the ring bearer becomes like this kindergartner that's tagging along with the group, it really (laughs) alters the story. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, and I'm sure in the Council of Elrond, they looked at him like a kindergartner anyway, and he was like, no, no, I'm 50 years old, it'll be fine, (laughs) and, uh, but, uh, but they're like, yeah, 50's nothing, don't worry about it. Right, yeah. In that crowd, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Martin Freeman in the first movie, I mean, one of my favorite, one of the things that I thought that they really captured, I mean, oh, Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was stuff before it, but I haven't re-seen it again super fast. But the the only thing that really that I wanted a little more of in the second movie, but I was still pleased as punch about this. Pleased as punch. I'm 107. Anyway, uh, but the was the scene with Bilbo Riddles in the Dark, yeah. essentially. Yes. It they nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. I thought. Absolutely. That was so, that scene was so well done. Um, you know, Bilbo's reactions uh, and, and, and even if sort of the, the client, the culmination of that scene and my favorite part, um, yeah. was the confrontation with Gollum at the end where he chooses not to stab him. Um, yeah. you know, the, 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 the nonverbal exchange that goes on between Martin Freeman and Andy Serkis in that moment is incredible. You know, what you can see going across Gollum's face, that moment, which, which is so, I mean, goodness, so much pressure, um, you know, to make Gollum still wretched and nasty and wicked, but also something that you would look at and take yeah. pity on and identify with. I can't imagine, you know, being an actor and being told, okay, do that all with your facial expression. You right. <laughs> I have no dialogue for exactly. you. You're going to have to just make it just, real. Just look at the camera and look, you know, wicked and nasty, but pitiable and, uh, uh, you know, and, yeah. and, and forlorn. And then to Bilbo, like, okay, 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 Martin, what I want you to do is <laughs> I want you to be thinking first that you should just kill him because he's in the way and you've got to save your own life. Then and you kind of try to rationalize that to yourself, but then recognize that he's, you know, a fellow creature like you and put yourself in his yeah. place and then decide that you shouldn't kill him, but you still need to get past. So you're going to jump over him again. No it has to be yeah. less than a minute and a half. <laughs> right, exactly. Cause even though Peter Jackson, all of his movies run long, he's got to have somebody slide down a chute so that it looks like a ride. Exactly. So, like, uh, in, so like you only have seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. In like tw- 20 seconds and without words, just with your facial expressions, give us that. Right. And they did. Both of them succeed yeah. brilliantly. That scene with the two of them looking at each other, well, Gollum looking in his direction and not seeing him and Bilbo looking at him, um, was, you know, I think that's one of the 
crucial moments in the entire book, uh, and they absolutely knocked that out of the park. I love yeah. that treatment of that. I mean, the whole the whole riddle exchange I thought was done very well. I, I, yeah. I did really like that. That moment was absolutely spectacular. Um, and Freeman in the second film, again, just continues to impress me. As I said, I'm very ignorant about uh, movies in general, uh, and so I am very, very rarely do I – emerge from a film saying I'm super impressed with the acting job done by one of the actors. Normally, if I don't, because <laughs> you're not thinking about right, it. Exactly. As much as exactly. I just enjoyed the movie part of it. Right. And I get it. And normally, you know, if an actor does a really good job, I can tell because I didn't think about it very much. You know, basically the right. more I'm able to get into the film and think about the character as it's being portrayed and less about the actor, then the better it's succeeding. But in this case, you know, Martin Freeman is just, his his nonverbal acting is incredible. What that man can accomplish through facial expression alone, um, I, I, it's, I've rarely seen the like. It's it's absolutely amazing. I mean, you think of the this this is actually something. Um, you know, there have only been a couple things that I've been sort of allowing myself to bicker with people about uh, by Twitter. <laughs> but this is one thing that I have taken a stand on: is that you know when people have said. You know, oh, like the film was awful. There was no development of Bilbo's character. No, there was a lot of development of Bilbo's character, but almost a hundred percent of it is nonverbal. He doesn't get much dialogue. There's no, nobody talks about Bilbo's character. Um, right. Nobody's talking to Bilbo for most of it. <laughs> but you, <laughs> which is what somebody had a problem with that. They were like, I thought this was supposed to be a story about Bilbo. And I was like, it is. <laughs> and yet, because of all the fleshing out from the other, from the other sources, right. it's, he can't be in every scene. No, and you and you would complain about it if you were exactly. He's he's not he's not he he is indeed not really the central uh, the central figure. Um, as you know, it's just one of the things that uh, that you know Gandalf sort of comments on in the Quest of Erebor, one of Tolkien's later writings about this, when Gandalf is giving his version uh, basically of the unexpected party, and you know what you know basically Tolkien's point later on is that the original Hobbit story um, suffered from serious bias on Bilbo's part because he was telling the story and so he will sort of put himself at the middle and all of the things that happened to him uh, are the main focus of the story where of course Gandalf says, well, after the fact in retrospect, you can see that actually uh, Bilbo's you know, what Bilbo did was significant, but, you know, his part in the story wasn't actually really anything like the whole story um, right. or the most important parts of the story. And, of course, that's the version that Peter Jackson's doing. But um, but anyway, yeah, nevertheless, the case is that Bilbo's character develops quite a bit, especially over the first film and over the second film. I mean, I think about that scene, the scene which a lot of critics com- complained about in film one, which I thought was so brilliant. The scene when Bilbo wakes up uh, after the unexpected party and finds bag end empty and the contract left there. And yeah. Martin Freeman takes us from, you think, when he walks out um, from the conversation with Gandalf, where again, you know, they're having the whole Token Baggins conversation, uh, there mm-hmm. right after Bilbo faints. Um, and Bilbo leaves <laughs> and then he, he hears the dwarf singing their song. And so we, yeah. we, we see him listening to the dwarf song. We see him wake up in the morning and the, the, the number of reactions that he obviously has. You can see the whole like chain of thoughts going through Bilbo's mind as he's wandering around Bag End. 
Um, and, you know, from there to running down the path, waving the contract uh, and following the dwarves on the adventure. He gets us from walking out of the room with Gandalf, no, I'm not going to do it, to running down the path without words. Not one word of dialogue from him right. comes in right. between those places. But yet I, it, it, it didn't feel abrupt to me. That scene, um, which la- which does last much longer than completely nonverbal scenes tend to last in movies, I thought was yeah. really effective. And they have done that. They have. They have uh, done so many things, especially with Bilbo's character, outside of dialogue, you know, just to, to actually let it be silently, um, uh, you know, sort of understood by his actions and what he does and, and his facial expressions. So that I, I've, I've, I've generally been really pleased and I'm going to be fascinated to see where Bilbo char- Bilbo's character goes in film three. Right. So the, so, uh, to back, to backpedal a little yeah, bit here. Yeah. So the quest of Erebor mm-hmm. is where a lot of the Gandalf stuff is coming from, yes, right? Yes. A lot of it. Um, so yeah, because in the Hobbit, we hear, because it's so funny to me because <laughs> he, le- you know, as they walk into Mirkwood, he's like, Oh, I got to go. Uh, and then he doesn't come back until the mountain. Right. Right. And, um, and what Peter Jackson is doing is he's showing, cause people, one, one of the biggest things I get are people who haven't read the books right. and they're, they say, wasn't it one small book? Wasn't exactly. it one 220 page? And right. I said, there's all this other stuff. And so they're taking stuff from the quest of Erebor yep. from the appendices yes. of the yep. Lord of the Rings. What are a couple of the, um, what are, the, what are a couple of the appendices stories that they're grabbing from? Well, Do you remember? Yeah, the main thing, uh, the number one thing is the story of the dwarves that we get in Appendix A. So the whole history of Durin's folk that is given in Appendix A is in its way all really relevant uh, to this okay. story. Because prior to that, we didn't have any real development of the hist. You know, we, we didn't know any of the context of the dwarves as a people. In fact, um, it's really a, a, a significant move forward in Tolkien. If, if you sort of look back over Tolkien's, all of Tolkien's writings, both his published and his unpublished writings, you know, that is to say the writings that weren't published until after his death. Um, right. And you look at the dwarves and how he handled dwarves. Back in his early writings, like way before The Hobbit, when he had, wasn't publishing any of this stuff and he was just writing the stories which eventually are going to become the Silmarillion, in those early stories, like in the teens and 20s and early 30s, um, yeah. the dwarves are bad guys. They're almost in, they're, they're, they're a lot like the dwarves in Norse mythology who tend to be pretty nasty. The same kind of dwarves that we saw supporting the White Witch in the Chronicles of Narnia. That, that those were the same, uh, those were the same kind of, the, like dwarves coming from the same mythology basically from, okay. from, from the same place. The dwarves were a little bit better than orcs, but not much better. Then in The Hobbit, quite suddenly, the dwarves are much yeah. more sympathetic creatures. They're not yet noble. I mean, if you just read The Hobbit and did not have The Lord of the Rings, if you did not have Gimli to help you, you probably right. would not come away from The Hobbit with a very high opinion of dwarves in general. Uh, yeah. The dwarves are kind of cowardly and practical and uh, buffoonish they're a little in a lot greedy. of places. They're, yes. yeah, they're, you know, they've got a lot of issues. They do have a lot they, of issues. Yeah. <laughs> they are not the heroes. No. They, they are not altruistic heroes of anything. But they are, uh, all we know about them is that they are very strong and then they can, and they can, uh, and they can make things. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. That's they're, what I came out of it with anyway. The relationship with their craftsmanship is, you know, so their focus, uh, on Erebor, you know, their focus on the Lonely Mountain, of course, the name Erebor is never used in The Hobbit. Um, the focus on the Lonely Mountain, um, is entirely on the recovery of their treasure, but 
but of course not in a not in a gold digging kind of way. It's not it's not money they're thinking about. Right. It's not wealth they're thinking about. They're thinking about the treasure. They're thinking about the craftsmanship of their of their forefathers. You know, they're thinking about all of those things made by uh, skill and by cunning and by craft. Uh, yeah. That you know that the narrator refers that to. are buried underneath all of that gold. Exactly. They want all that stuff back, and they want they don't even know how to make stuff. What we find out at the end. I mean, right. it's it's right. some of that stuff got lost. Exactly. Yeah. They can't make things uh, as well as their forefathers did. Um, so yeah, and that was all Appendix A. That's all Appendix A. A lot of that is in Appendix. So what what we get in Appendix? Well, one of the things we get a whole bunch of stuff in Appendix A. But one of the things we get in Part Three of Appendix A is uh, <laughs> the story of Durin's folk. So it's basically a it's not a full history of the dwarves by any stretch. But then, so now in the Lord of the Rings. So again, the Hobbit. He's writing in the early 30s. At, at that moment, the dwarves. Cross the lines. They cease to be bad guys and become at least uh, potentially good guys. And by the end of The Hobbit, they are good guys. Um, and but yet they're still not a heroic people. They don't. They don't have. You know, we don't have anything like the history that the elves uh, had or the traditions of the, uh, the 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 human heroes of old or anything like that. That was in, that was there in the Silmarillion tradition. So in right. in that appendix, Tolkien is writing the history of the dwarves, and that's where we get a lot of the material that you see in the uh, in the movie. That certainly the okay. stuff about the battle uh, with between Thorin and Azog. That's based on the story of the battle of Azanul Bazar um, in uh, in appendix. Oh, right. A. So that's okay. that, that's all from there. Just the whole idea of like the, the whole placement of this people and where the Lonely Mountain came from and uh, and the role that it plays uh, as far as being their homeland and how they got there and all this stuff. And just the, the placing of the dwarves in a larger history is a big part of the whole um, the whole uh, sort of significance of the story that we get um, that that we get right. in the films. At the end of that appendix, right at the very end of that section, uh, section three, when Tolkien was originally writing the appendices uh, before The Return of the King came out, he, yeah. he also included now this entire alternate narrative of the beginning of The Hobbit. Um, he told the, this fictitious story um, of – you know, that, well, fictitious in the sense it doesn't happen in the rest of The Lord of the Rings, but he's sort of imagining okay. after the destruction of Sauron, um, while the company are still in Minas Tirith before everybody sets out for home, one day they're peacefully in Minas Tirith. Uh, Gandalf and Gimli and Frodo and a couple other people are hanging out uh, in Minas Tirith, and Gimli asks Gandalf, you know, Gandalf, I've always been meaning to ask, why Bilbo? I mean, what was up with that? Because clearly that was, I mean, yeah, it worked out, but that was really weird. How did, how did that happen? Sure, they're, sit, they're sitting on the deck. They're having a couple of beers. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> whatever happened. And yeah. so Gandalf's like, oh boy, uh, okay, I'll tell you the story. And so he tells this, the version of it, how he met Thorin in Bree. This is the scene that, uh, they, they, the flashback they started film two with. Well, they allude film yeah. two. They, yeah, uh, exactly. That's what that was. That, that's what that was. So yeah, Thorin, okay. Thorin and, Thorin and Gandalf meet in Bree by chance. Uh, though of course in the film they suggest it wasn't entirely by chance. They make Gandalf a lot more intentional there. Um, but right. anyway, Gandalf and Thorin, uh, meet each other and, uh, uh, they decide they go back and talk. They go back to Thorin's halls in the Blue Mountains, and then uh, Gandalf ends up introducing him to Bilbo. Um, and then he describes a little bit of the party itself from Gandalf's point of view, uh, and saying notably uh, that 
um, Bilbo had no idea how ridiculous and fatuous the dwarves thought him. And in fact, uh, he speaks of this long debate that Gandalf and Thorin had after Bilbo went to bed, um, where Thorin was actively right. insulted, was sort of assuming that Gandalf was just trying to make a mockery of them by bringing him there at all. But he thought, he thought Bilbo was so ridiculous that it must yeah. be an active insult, uh, by Gandalf right, right. to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to help you here. This is the guy you need in your company. Uh, and Gandalf actually had to deliver a prophecy. He says, you know, a foretelling is upon me, Thorin Oakenshield. If you bring this <laughs> hobbit with you, you shall succeed. If you do not, you will fail. Believe me, you know, disbelieve me at your peril. Um, and right. so Thorin says, okay, fine, we'll bring fine. your stupid hobbit. Um, even we'll though I know he's going to be useless. Store guy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I know he's going to be useless, but he makes Gandalf promise, but only if you will come with us too. And, that, okay. and that's how Gandalf ends up setting off with them when he hadn't intended to in the first place. So again, th- that version of the story. Now, when the publishers finally came, they were already looking at the appendices, parts of which Tolkien had sent them, and were like, dude, these are really long. Um, do we, do we <laughs> eat all this stuff? So in the end, they made him cut some of it. So he ended up cutting the majority of that story. If you look at the very end of Appendix A in the published Return of the King, there's still a, a snippet of this conversation between Gimli and Gandalf and Frodo there. Um, but the majority of that story is not told. Um, it was cut. It never saw the light of day in Tolkien's lifetime. Christopher Tolkien published the whole thing in the volume called Unfinished Tales. Yeah, you, you, you gotta, you gotta eat. So Christopher yeah. Tolkien. Right. And now, and now Michael, right? Michael's the grandson? Uh, one of them, one of them. Well, uh, yeah, there is a, there is a Michael who's a grandson, though Christopher is still in, is still running the show. He's got, he's, yeah, he's, he's got a, he's got a grip. Yeah. He's yeah. got the grip. So, um, okay. So let's go into, so what we do is, is, all right. I, I know that my friend Kevin will want me to ask you, uh, Radagast. Yes. He, uh, he doesn't enjoy the bird poop. He doesn't enjoy <laughs> anything happening. The fact that Radagast should be more powerful as a wizard. Right. He should be a better role model as a wizard. You know, I actually have to say, I was impressed. In film one, Radagast barely featured in film two. So there's not much right. to add from Radagast from film two. No, all he is is an open wound for Kevin <laughs> right. in the second movie. Right. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, actually, I have to say in film one, one of the things that I was yeah. kind of impressed by is Radagast was like a little more powerful than I was. I, I, I wasn't sure they were going to make him that powerful. I mean, yeah, they used Radagast for comic relief and made him, you know, try to make him cute rather than impressive. But, mm-hmm. um, but he's not incompetent. Uh, you know, he, he does like this scene both where he fights off the Witch King and takes the Morgul Blade and, uh, right. and you know, the scene where he uh, sort of bizarrely exercises the hedgehog. Um, were both, <laughs> right. both moments where again, he, he. Those are valid uses of power. Absolutely. Yeah. They were. Um, so I actually, I, I, I didn't find him disappointingly weak. Um, you know, one thing that has to be said, Radagast. I mean, if you want to, if you want a character in Tolkien's world who's a blank slate, Radagast is a pretty darn good candidate. You know, I mean, we know almost nothing about Radagast. The only one thing we know about Radagast, um, is, uh, the films stayed true to, quite aggressively true to, which is that he is okay. the friend of birds, of, of beasts, and birds are especially his friends. Very aggressive. That, that, was- that one line is all we know about Radagast. I guess other than <laughs> and- the fact that Saruman despises him. Him. That also we right. know. Which is also a vote in his favor. Exactly. Uh, Corey, let me tell you something. Uh, Andy Ashcraft has a question 
Uh, he's, he's come back. Will you, will you, will you come and, 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 Please ask it yourself. We we have a guest question okay. from uh, my husband, Andy Ashcraft, Corey Olson. Corey Olson, pleasure to meet you. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to ask you, and you may have already talked about this because I just came in uh, maybe ten minutes ago. Okay. Um, about the two orc bosses. Yes. Because I know that you were. I don't think that you were expecting to see no, both. No, I was very surprised when 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 Azog. That was that was the moment because I spent all this time uh, sort of speculating and predicting about what was going to happen hours. in the films. I tend hours yeah, and hours, many, many dozens of hours. <laughs> I, I I tend to when I'm watching the films for the first time react uh, very inappropriately in ways that are completely puzzling to the people around me. Um, <laughs> this is why, for instance, I like fist pumped and cheered when uh, Azog lifted lifted Thor's severed head in the first film because I totally called that we would see Thor's severed head in the film and Excellent. I was delighted to see it. Uh, in the second film, that was my inappropriate reaction. When Azog turns and cries out for Bolg, I I, I totally fist pumped again because I was very glad to see Bolg. Um, <laughs> I'm excellent. I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled by by sort of where they've gone with it. Just sort of the the, the production history in the films of Azog and Bolg really confuses me. The kind of mixed messages that they've been sending, the way in which it looked like they were cutting Bolg entirely, and then they reintroduced Bolg for quite a major role, but have totally changed his visual design. He looks nothing like the Bolg character that was released in Describe action figures or- and posters before the first film, and then vanished. Um, oh. uh, it just they've totally changed the look of him and what's more they seem to have totally changed this film one of the films one of the scenes that we saw and uh, you know on the riddles in the dark podcast we've been laughing about it for a month because it's been in every single trailer it's like one of the most cliched snippets we've seen in all of the 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 trailer material for the desolation of smaug was that shot of azog leaping up onto the parapet in the fight against the elves and it never happens of course he's not there in the film they obviously cut that out we could see the scene I recognize them because I've seen it so many times in the trailers. I recognize the moment, the shot of the parapet and the elves falling away, but Azog doesn't leap up just like some random red shirt orc. It's not even Bolg leaps up. So wow. they, they, they obviously edited Azog out of that scene at a very late period, uh, in the production of the film. And I don't know. I'd be fascinated someday to hear the entire Azog Bolg saga from Peter Jackson and Philip Boyens. I don't know how and why this has been going on. So partly it's me kind of, uh, part of my confusion is me trying to sort of handle that and figure that out. Um, Right. You know, the thing about Azog and Bolg is that they're father and son. So you've got the father and son, you've got the father-son vengeance thing going on with Thorin, uh, and with Azog. Of course, Thorin to Azog is, in that sense, cross-generational because uh, Thorin and Bolg would be the more close parallel as the, uh, right. you know, but, but anyway, I, I, that, I'm going to be interested to see where they go with this now that they have reintroduced Bolg. Uh, in the books, of course, just as a refresher, um, Bolg is the general of the goblin army that comes and attacks the Lonely Mountain in the Battle of Five Armies. And the fact at that- At the end of the Hobbit. At the end of yeah. the Hobbit, exactly. And the fact that he is, his name is Bolg and that he is the son of Azog, whose father, you know, who, or that he's the son of Azog, Azog, which, who was killed by Dan, the dwarf from the lonely, from the Iron Hills. Um, uh, that is alluded to. Gandalf says this again in The Hobbit says, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the goblins are come. They are led by Bolg, uh, whose father Azog, you slew Dan, um, in the mines of Moria. So right. that whole back history, um, of the goblin, 
son who is coming back and leading an army and seeking vengeance, seeking not only treasure but also vengeance uh, against the dwarves was a feature. It was a small feature, didn't get a whole lot of, you know, stage time in The Hobbit, but it's there. It's it's a it's an element And now they're both alive in the in the movie. Yes, exactly. This is one reason why in film 1 I didn't I didn't hate the fact that Azog had survived and come back as a recurring villain cuz I'm like, you know, okay. Um the whole I'm a recurring villain seeking vengeance thing makes Azog an interesting foil for Thorin, right? Who's clearly sure. got vengeance issues of his own. And so you, you can kind of put them in parallel and, and, and that's kind of interesting. Um, and I was like, okay, well, since Bolg seems to have vanished, um, instead of getting the son of the dead father coming back and seeking vengeance, you have Azog himself coming back and seeking vengeance. Uh, right. and that's all kind of interesting. Um, you know, again, to have this sort of e- evil foil and kind of touchstone for Thorin, um, Especially knowing that Thorin is going to be, you know, sort of descending down into uh, unpleasant places um, as far as his <laughs> own, you know, headspace right. is concerned towards the end of the story. Um, to have Azog there from the beginning as this sort of point of contrast, you don't want to end up like that, do you, you know, Thorin? So um, right. I, I thought that that worked Fine. Now Bolg confuses me, and I'm not sure what to do with it, frankly, in film two. We'll see. Right. Where things go in the Battle of Five Armies with Azog and Bolg is going to be interesting, I think. We saw Bolg riding off from Lake Town, presumably, headed back to Dol Guldur. We know that Azog is there in Dol Guldur, leading the armies out. Um, the two of them are presumably going to meet up again. I don't know if they will both be at the Battle of Five Armies. I rather assume they will. Why not? Why not? Why wouldn't they both come? Exactly. So, so. <laughs> they're like, "Well, I was here. Let's just both go fight." Exactly. Him. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. How, the extent to which they're going to develop that connection, you know, the Azog Bolg connection uh, as a father son thing and connection with the, um, though you know, come to think of it, have they even mentioned that in the? I mean, I know that Bolg is Azog's son from the books, but in the film, I mean, Azog calls for Bolg, but if I didn't know that he was his son, the it film wouldn't, wouldn't have told me, would it? I mean, he just looks like he's calling. I don't know. We're going to go see it again tonight. Yeah. Did you see it in, uh, did you see it in, in, in regular 2D or did you see it in 3D high frame rate? I saw it. Super duper audio. First in 3D, but low frame rate. 24 okay. frames per second 3D, <laughs> which is the first time I, the first time, first film I saw in 2D, 24 frames, and then in 3D, 48 frames. This one, right. seeing the kind of the middle ground that, you know, mm-hmm. in 3D, but in 24 frames per second, and then seeing it in 3D, 48 frames per second, that was like night and day. I thought the high frame rate made an enormous difference. And I like, I mean, lots of people complain about it. Um, I actually don't agree with the complaints at all. People who say, oh, it looks like a daytime soap opera. To them, my response is, no, it looks like a stage drama, actually. I mean, to me, the effect huh. is, I feel like I'm looking at a set. I don't feel like I'm looking at a film. Um, it, 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 I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in a, Theater. A theater, We're, yeah. Yeah. Look, looking at stuff happening uh, on a very improbably high-tech stage. Um, th- <laughs> okay. That's to me the effect, um, and I think it's pretty cool. But All right. So um, here's my next question for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is uh, what did you think? I liked it. Uh, just going to say going in. I mean, you can say whatever you want. But uh, when the fact that Thorin faces the dragon in the in the yes. it, that's one of the things that I was like, I think Tolkien chose wrong. I think Thorin would not have sent Bilbo down that that hallway three times. He would have gone himself to face that dragon. That's exactly the kind and of tee yeah. him off. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing that I think um, 
See, you know, would, you know, would Tolkien have done exactly that? I don't know, but I certainly agree. Tolkien, if Tolkien were writing this story in the fifties, he would never have written that, what he wrote in The Hobbit. Um, never, never. Ask yourself this. What would Gimli do? Okay, we know Gimli, yeah. right? We've got Gimli. Imagine Gimli in that position, you know, returning to his homeland and, and, uh, I mean, Remember Gimli and the in bad Moria. guy's right there. I know. Yeah. Remember Gimli in Moria, right? You know, ha- having to be dragged away from Balin's tomb and 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 the ferocity with which he faces the orcs. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, when they come to attack the chamber of Mazarbul, and then imagine that's like times ten for Thorin yeah. returning to the kingdom of his fathers and his and 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 to imagine that Thorin, you know, that Gimli. Again, just taking Gimli, would cower in a tunnel and hide and never dare to face the dragon or even really seriously contemplate going up to face the dragon. That becomes inconceivable. Um, right. So is it different from the book? Absolutely it's different from the book, but that's because the book is there still using the dwarves primarily as comic relief. They're funny. They're still funny. Yeah. Um, and they're they still rare, goofy. Yeah, they're still yeah. goofy. They, they will be goofy until Thorin dramatically charges out during the Battle of Five Armies. That's like the moment, uh, pretty much, at which the dwarves cease to be goofy. They have a little flashes of non-goofiness uh, during the rest right. of the book, but that's not primarily where they are. Um, and yeah, it, a lot, it, yeah, the, inconsistent the, the, with the world uh, and with the dwarves in general yeah. and, the, and the world as Tolkien later came to conceive it. And how cool, but I, you know, as, as I thought that the fight scene was too long. Yes. But it was genuinely one of the, my phone rings sometimes during the, <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, but, uh, that's fine. The, uh, <laughs> but the thing is, is it's the, the, I was so, I mean, I, I, it was really cool looking that scene. I mean, they, they nailed the dragon was so cool looking, but I did find it, you know, there was the comic relief of people, you know, dwarves in toilets and dwarves in, yes. In yeah. coal buckets and, yeah. and sliding around gold and following the Arkenstone all around. Right. And the fact, I was glad that he found the ring after he dropped it among that pile of gold <laughs> immediately. Right, right, right. Oh, right, right. It was elf parkour. <laughs> it was dwarf parkour. That's it. Yeah. That's what, yeah. that, that's what Andy called it. He called it a dwarf parkour where they're jumping around. Yeah. On things. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I do agree. Um, during the final sequence, I could wish it had been shorter. Um, it was one of the only parts of the films that one of, one of the only parts of the film that while I was watching it, I was thinking uh, I, I could use a little bit less of this. Um, right. <laughs> but at the same time, I actually loved um, the symbolism of what they were doing. What they were doing on several levels didn't make any sense. Um, uh, that much gold would take much longer than that to melt. Uh, you know, oh, right. uh, the, the metal uh-huh. wheelbarrow upon which Thorin was riding on a, a river of molten gold would at the very least become uncomfortably oh. warm if it had not oh, melted away you. itself. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, so anyway, at, 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 I suspended my disbelief in the crystal skull Indiana Jones. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, I'm a simple woman of the people. No, exactly. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I often tell my much more, uh, uh, wise and sophisticated friends, uh, that I have, I have, I have a tremendous gift. I don't like to brag, but I have a tremendous gift for the suspension of disbelief and these things <laughs> usually don't bother me all that much. Right. Uh, I, I can suspend disbelief with the best of them. But, but again, during all of this stuff, what I really liked, um, 
was the 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 symbolism and i hate using that word because it's so english teachery but um just but there were there were there were such flashes through that first of all again it was another place where even while you know in the midst of the scene with the fight with smaug inside the mountain like if there's any place which you would think is deviating from the book it would be that right i mean this is completely right. uh unprecedented or unsuggested in anything from the book and yet during those yeah. places um lines from the book kept floating up into my mind as I'm watching it. When the when the molten gold pours out and uh Thorin jumps on top of it again, the 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 uh the former physics major in me was crying right. out in protest. But <laughs> right. the the physical, sure. <laughs> right. But at the same time I'm saying okay, the rivers are running with gold, right? That was the whole, yeah. that's the lines from the book where, the, you know, in, in Lake Town, they're saying, oh, you know, when the, when the, when the king under the mountain returns, the rivers will flow with gold. I'm like, look, it's like, he's, he's the king it's under the mountain is riding on a golden river. That's, you know, I'm like, yeah. that's really cool. Like that, 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 that one shot image was yeah. really neat. And of course, um, when the, in, uh, it, it, when when the people of Lake Town are looking up and they see the dragon fire on the mountainside, they say, "Ah, the king under the mountain uh, is foraging gold." You know, they, they talk about the lighting of the forges of the king under the mountain, and we actually see the lighting of the forges of the king under the mountain. The king under the mountain right. does, in fact, forge gold. Uh, yeah. he, he returns to the mountain, and again, I I like that. You know, there there are ways in which it yeah. there there are ways in which in those ways the films actually sort of. Uh, fulfilled the, those moments, those sort of prophetic moments, uh, more, you know, in, in a very different way yeah. from the book. So, cause of course the people who are saying those things are all quite deluded and inaccurate, uh, <laughs> in the book. Right. But, uh, you know, in the film to see those things in a very different way kind of come true, um, had for me a, a very profound effect. And, and I, anyway, so there are things like that that I really, um, that from, uh, from just thinking about what they're doing with that and, and, and think about what they're doing with the characters. Again, I, I mean, as you said, Thorin, there is no way that a post Lord of the Rings Thorin, that the Thorin Oaken Shield we meet and hear about in the, in Appendix A of the Lord yeah. of the Rings, that Thorin Oaken Shield is no way gonna not even make an attempt at the dragon is, right. is, is, is not even gonna enter. That was something, again, you know, one of the, the, the one, and I will confess, I cried. At the, at one point. Oh. In the, in the Desolation of Smaug film. The moment at which I cried was the moment yeah. when the secret door opens and Thorin comes in and Balin's all in tears and, and yeah. I cried. I cried when that happened. Awesome. That moment. Because yeah. they really capture there a moment which in the book, again, Gimli would. Your have forest that is a safe space. You yeah. can cry whatever you want. It's, so, but at the door, yeah. it wasn't, it was the last sunlight, right? Yes, it was it not was. moonlight. It was. But, because they read the map at the moon ruins, yeah. right? They, I, it, they were moon ruins, but the, the light was sun. Yeah, that was one of the choices that I wasn't really fond of. It doesn't really, uh, even if, if. It didn't add anything. No, it didn't. I, the, here's what I, here's the, Here's okay. There's there's one way in which I like that. The fact that they made it the light of the moon, I didn't particularly like. But yeah. uh, the uh, the the way that they handled the scene, I thought, did have some virtues. And again, connections to the book. Um, in the book, Bilbo 
is in a very different place from the rest of the dwarves when they're all hunting on the mountainside for the secret door. Um, the dwarves are all feeling very depressed and defeated and are inclined to give up and just go around and try to go in the front gate or actually send Bilbo in through the front gate. Bilbo right. is the one who keeps looking at the map and who doesn't give up, and he's the one who eventually discovers it. They would never have found the secret door without him. However, so again, what you can see... Wait, wasn't it because he kind of, he was like, I'm never going to get home unless we do this? Well, so was that he, sort of he part of it, or he doesn't no? explicitly say that. Um, That's what I always felt was his yeah, motivation. Well, I mean, it starts. Uh, you know, the the day that the secret door opens begins with him um, sitting on the doorstep and looking out, uh, looking out to the west towards the Shire, and sort of thinking about home and wanting to be home. Um, so that that element is definitely there, and I think that, that that's okay. a really interesting moment when he's sitting there on the mountain looking back towards the hill, and you've got the whole like parallel between mountain and hill thing going on, and it's, and it's, and it's really cool. Uh, but... But leading up through that, all through through the majority of chapter eleven in the book, which is where all that happens, um, Bilbo is the is the one to be who is more confident, um, and the one who is thinking about the um, who is thinking He's about trying to the figure it out as 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 a riddle. Yeah, he's the one who keeps up his spirits, whereas the rest of them are getting all defeatist. Now, again, so so again, this is one example of uh, one of several examples where I can see them not just. Not just being true to the books, going out of their way to retain elements which would have been easy to set aside. That discrepancy, right. the fact that Bilbo is the one who finds the secret door and that the other dwarves would have given up and not found the secret door if Bilbo had not been persistent. That is an element right. in the book. It's there. But they couldn't just do it exactly the same way as in the book because right. the dwarves' characters are totally different. You know, again, the dwarves uh, being depressed and giving up is part of their whole comic thing. I mean, they're, it's, 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 it's another example of the general incompetence that the dwarves in the book show, um, the, the <laughs> right. general sort of unfitness for the lives of adventurers. Um, and again, since these dwarves in the film are not like that at all, how do we do that? So how can we have a moment where the dwarves have given up hope or, you know, seem to be giving up hope, and yet Bilbo persists and perseveres, and through his persistence and perseverance, finds the secret door where the dwarves would have missed it. Well, they do that, right? They do that through the setting of the sun by having the dwarves have hope and then lose it when they have good reason to seem to lose it, and yet Bilbo right. to, 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 to still slightly more tenaciously uh, hang on okay. to hope than they do. I, so, right. I, Moonlight itself, not a fan. But the way that that whole scene unfolded, um, again, I'm thinking like, yeah, that's they, 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 they're really paying attention to yeah. Bilbo's character in the book. That was an important moment for Bilbo in the book, and they kept that moment in the film when they had every excuse not to. I expected it not right. to happen when they were all standing around and the sun was setting. I was totally expecting them just to find the door and not have Bilbo play any peculiar role uh, in the right. location of the door. And then they kept it, and I'm like, okay, moonlight, not so much, but hey, that was cool. They did but, it. But they, yeah, they found that, that. You're right. They did find a good way. Okay, now I have two more. Questions questions because we're pushing yeah. whatever uh we could talk about this uh forever <laughs> yes, it turns yeah. out uh yeah. <laughs> um toriel mm-hmm. toriel and legolas yes and yeah. um Keely. and keely toriel and i ginger hayes is a is a is a young artist and blogger yep. on tumblr and she is she made what i thought was an excellent point yesterday where she talked about how Toriel was much more interesting than Keeley was mm-hmm. in that 
in, in, in that romantic relationship. Yes. Yeah. That, that, and she was a good fighter and there was, I mean, and there's no reason why there aren't female elves. How are there baby elves? Right. So, uh, right. Female elves and definitely why, exist. And what's more, right. uh, there are plenty of examples of female elves, uh, who, uh, did not live Fighters? a, yeah, exactly. Uh, who do not live a quiet and passive life. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I, and I, and a lot of people have a, I mean, great. I mean, it's not ideal from a, from a feminist standpoint that the only people that are there are, um, are, you know, it's, it's a, it has to be some sort of romantic thing. Yeah. But, but nerds are super romantic. And that's what I think. Peter Jackson, giant dork. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I think there should be girls. Would there be girls in his D and D game? There would be girls right. in his D and D game. Right. <laughs> so right. I gen- that's why I think he did it. But I think Toriel's awesome because she fights great and and I and I like that Legolas it made that whole him jumping on elephants thing in the Lord of the Rings much more much more palatable. Uh-huh. When he's doing his elfish ponfar, right, you know? Right, right. And, um. Yeah, I mean, in general, I, you know, one thing I think about Toriel is, uh, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's one of several ways in which Jackson is in a completely no-win situation as far as the adaptation is concerned. Um, right. I mean, of course, he, he confronts one big problem, which everyone has, has, uh, you know, for the last 50 years has pointed out, which is that The Hobbit contains no female characters whatsoever. I mean, you just, you right. never find two X chromosomes in one place from one end of the book to the next. And, um, yeah. so this is a problem, obviously. This is a problem which confronts a film adaptation of it. Um, now he's, it, he's, but it never, it never affected any of the men, you know, the thousand cowboy movies or the, right. you know, I mean, but fine. Yes. Right. Okay. So anyway, so but he's going to add characters, right? So, and, 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 and wood elves are a great place to add characters because we only basically meet one wood elf. I know that we, we, I mean, we meet Galleon, the butler who gets drunk. I don't count that. We never really know him. He's not really a character. Um, the Elven King, uh, Thranduil, as he will eventually later on be named, is, is the only, he's basically the representative wood elf in the Hobbit book. Um, we don't yeah. really ever get to know any of the rest of them. Um, but he yeah. wants us to have a better, and, you know, and, 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 and the fact is, our experience of the Merc, of, of the, the Merkwood elves in the Hobbit is pretty perfunctory. We don't get anything like the kind of experience of wood elves in their culture as we do in Lothlorien in the Fellowship of the Ring, for instance. This is, I think, one of the things that Tolkien disliked about the Hobbit looking back at it. Um, so it seems to me entirely uh, sensible to say, let's introduce some new Wood Elf characters. Legolas has to be there because he's the son of the Elven King. And although he wasn't in the Hobbit because he didn't exist in Tolkien's mind at that point, uh, right. retroactively, he would have to be there. I mean, there's zero chance that Legolas, the son of the Elven King, wouldn't have been at the Battle of Five Armies. He must have been there, though, of course, he's not mentioned because Tolkien hadn't thought of him yet. But yeah. um, so anyways, OK, <laughs> so 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 he's already got Legolas, but he wants to introduce a third character, which I think works really well in the film and the way that you get, uh, you know, three. Randul and his jerkitude and his isolationist policies, and you get Toriel and her greater generosity and her desire to be more proactive and to be a part of the world rather than to separate themselves from it, and Legolas caught in the middle between the two of them. That, I thought, worked really well and, and, and enabled him to present a much more complicated and interesting and engaging view of wood elf culture 
than yeah. if we had just had Thranduil or even if we just had Thranduil and Legolas. So he's going to introduce an elf character. Now, does he make that elf character female or male? No win situation. If he makes her female, then everyone's like, oh, oh, goodness, look at this tokenism. He's not, you know, he, he's just doing, he's just doing this because he's, you know, he feels like he's got to introduce a woman. He's got to appeal to whoever he's trying to appeal to with sometimes it's girls, right. sometimes it's boys, sometimes it's both. Um, or, but, but then if he doesn't, if he introduces a new character like that and, and he's male too, well, then he's going right. to get crucified the other way. Oh, boy, there was yeah. already an all-male cast and he introduced another male character and there's no excuse. I mean, so <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, basically he's sort of screwed either way. Everyone's going to complain one way or the other. Um, True. I liked Toriel. I thought she worked very well. Um, yeah. I, there were a lot of unexpected things that I got from Toriel. Um, yeah. Which were, I thought, very cool. And, and the Kiwi thing, you know, when, then that I was inoculated against that a long time ago. I mean, the rumors about the Akili Toriel relationship were leaked like you, a year and a half you, ago. Right. So you knew it was coming. I, yeah. I, I always strongly suspected that it was coming. Um, yeah. But let me say, I find a Toriel, the Toriel Kiwi thing about 50 times more interesting than if they had simply done a Lego Astoriel thing, which it looked like they were going to do. I mean, all the previews oh, and right. everything, I was, I was in dread of like a really boring kind of, you know, two qu- really good looking yeah, people like, staring, like, staring longingly at each like, other. Like, yeah. A kind of like yeah. quasi elf <laughs> Romeo and Juliet thing. Like, Oh, your father would never approve, but like our star crossed, crossed love can never blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, right. I was, I was really dreading that. And that story would have been completely irrelevant to the rest of the Hobbit story. That would have been nothing but a distraction. Let us now pause the entire progress <laughs> of the film in order to give you some sappy scenes between Legos and Toriel. That I would have found absolutely dreadful. However, yeah. the far more unlikely uh, uh, <laughs> thing that they did between Toriel and Kiwi um, – you know, people say like, well, don't you, you know, people have asked me like, don't you find this an absolutely ridiculous deviation from Tolkien? Absolutely not. I don't find it a ridiculous no. deviation from Tolkien. First of all, that kind of really unlikely interracial relationship has several precedents, which people forget about. Um, unlikely friendships. There's birds and elephants that hang out. <laughs> unlikely- There's cats and dogs that love <laughs> exactly. each other. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, Torio and Kiwi's relationship is way more probable than Baron and Luthien's relationship. I'm sorry. Like Baron and right. Lucian is a much bigger divide. There is there's much more space between them than there is between Toriel and Kiwi. Um, yeah. The fact that no such relationship was ever hinted at in Tolkien doesn't say much because very doesn't few dwarves ever get that right. kind of development. Right. And uh, Baron and Luthien, so people know, Luthien's an elf and Baron's a man. Yes. And so there's there is already you know, sentient beings of different kinds yeah. hanging out together. And Aragorn himself exactly. at the end of the Lord of the Rings um, is, is with Arwen. And so, and people Arwen, don't people. Correct? Yeah, exactly. People yeah. tend not to um, recognize what a big deal that is. I mean, in the films it's, it's the, they kind of try to make a big deal of it. Um, but people, it was a huge deal in the book. Cause Arwen no, is, nobody yeah. was psyched, right? Arwen is marrying down much, much further than the films <laughs> convey. You know, I mean, like right. it is, it is an almost inconceivable divide that she is crossing because the films follow Aragorn and he is awesome. Like, you know, the fact that it, it, it yeah, he's the hero. It's so hard think, not to emerge course. from those films thinking like, Hey, Arwen's the lucky one, right? She got to marry <laughs> Aragorn after he's king. And you, you it's hard. I, I, and, and I, frankly, I think kind of impossible, uh, to, 
capture that sense of which um, in which uh, Aragorn is marrying up farther than he could have any realistic sense of of, of aspiring to. Baron and Luthien, that's yeah, that's from the first stage story uh, from the it's Silmarillion. Congratulations to the guy. And uh, good luck to the lady. Good, exactly. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait, the, yeah. So it's a it's a story from the from the Silmarillion. From, yeah, from from oh, sorry. yeah from from the Silmarillion. Luthien is not only an elf maiden; she is literally the daughter of a goddess. I mean, this is you know her father <laughs> was one of the great kings of the elves, Thingol, and her mom is an angel. Like she is an angelic being. She's not even. <laughs> An elf. Like she's not. She. You know. She is so. So. Is she one of the Valar? Yeah. Well, she's an Einor. She's a Meyer. Uh, okay. You know. She's. Okay. She, so she's. So Luthien was literally half elf, half goddess. Uh, right. And Baron. Well, you know, he was pretty cool, but you know, he's just a human. <laughs> and so, the the extent to which he was marrying up again, like absolutely. I mean, I, 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 Keely and Toriel. That gap is nothing compared to what Tolkien right. in, does because in fact she, embrace. Right, because she's not even a fancy elf, according to no, the king. No, exactly. She's she is she is a quite she is like a third class elf, basically in the right. in the in the and, general elf hi- hierarchy in Tolkien's works. And Keeley is one of the heirs to exactly. the Lonely Mountains, right? So the, yes. so, the idea yeah. that one of the one of the one of the highest of the dwarves and one of the lower of the elves. Should, I mean, again, that's 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 got nothing on Arwen and Aragorn. That's got nothing on on Baron and Luthien. Um, and and frankly, I you know the interesting thing to me, the thing that I think is is so fascinating about the way that they're playing it in the film, it's. Very much not. Again, what people, you know, so many people have been saying, um, you know, uh, that I have been hearing like, oh, like it's just, it's such a, it's, it's so, it's so, you know, it totally wrecks the story. It totally accepts the story. It absolutely doesn't set the story aside like a Legolas, uh, Toriel really annoying relationship would have done. The relationship between elves and men and dwarves and how they should be building bridges among them and not just, um, you know, sort of, uh, letting old prejudices and old hatreds, Hatreds guide them, yeah. but that they need to overcome those and come to 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 respect and maybe even like each other uh, and work together and recognize their their links together. That is in fact a concern of the book. That's what the whole latter portion, the whole post yeah. Death of the Dragon, focuses on. Um, right. And so I see the relationship between Torio and and Kiwi. That's going to have really fascinating um, uh, after effects in film three. Oh, right. When, in when film the Elven three. King is 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 forming up with an army against Thorin on the other side, and I don't even physically know where Kiwi is going to be. Is Kiwi going to be on the? Is he, is he going to be uh, right? Right. Because they left him in town. Yeah. Is he, is he gonna <laughs> yeah. Be they never leave anybody in town. No, they don't. But but okay. Now we are at an hour. Yep. So. Um, this is a question that I was told the comedy film nerds guys wanted to ask you because I did two episodes about The Hobbit yesterday with okay. them. Okay. I did a regular episode and a spoiler episode. This one definitely can be defined as a spoiler episode. But as I like to tell people, there's a book. Right. So uh, how can I spoil something that already has an end? <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um, so do you see other stories that Peter Jackson <laughs> can make into movies? That's uh, what they want to know. Uh. Um, other Tolkien or, stories or, or any other Tolkien story. stories? Oh, I think he'll make other stories. Yeah, but other Tolkien stories. Well, that gets tricky because, of course, the obvious option, the obvious possibility, uh, and what many people have been asking about are Silmarillion stories. Um, 
Uh, that Which I, he, does, he doesn't have access to, I, does he? No, he does not. Nor, I believe, will he ever get them during his lifetime. Um, Christopher <laughs> Tolkien um, has holds the rights to the Silmarillion. Tolkien, during Tolkien's lifetime, J.R.R. Tolkien's lifetime, he sold the movie and stage rights to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings um, uh, to the the... the, the Tolkien Enterprises, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the, he he sold film rights uh, and stage rights; the, those are also included um, to the company, which is now Tolkien Enterprises, the Saul Zantz Corporation. Um, that so that was Tolkien himself did that in his lifetime, but of course he did oh. not sell the rights to his other stuff. It was only explicitly to the Hobbit and to the Lord of the Rings. Therefore, the Silmarillion remains under the exclusive control of the estate and of Christopher Tolkien, um, and it is. Uh, uh, and, 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 so Children of Huron yeah. and the Baron Luthien story, that's all Silmarillion. It is. Um, okay. Now, so do I think there might be interesting stuff there that could make really good movies? Yes. In particular, I have always thought that the Turin Turinbar story uh, from the Silmarillion would make an awesome movie. Um, really depressing. Uh, Wait, nothing like yeah, yeah. Isn't that the one where everyone dies? Oh, yeah. We've got like everyone <laughs> dies Turinbar. and then we end with like incest and suicide. So it's really oh, it's, it's so it's Game of Thrones. It's so everyone like, would want to watch exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. It's, uh, it's like Game of Thrones <laughs> with a little bit less nudity, uh, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, but they would put nudity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, certainly if HBO did it, yeah. But um, yes. but anyway, I, I do think I do think the Torin Torinbar. That's of of all the Silmarillion stories. That's the one that seems like most suited to film. Um, yes. But uh, but no, I I. I that certainly any kind of film adaptation of any Silmarillion stories would have to be done literally over Christopher Tolkien's dead body. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's not until he is dead that that would even be right. open for discussion. Um, right. Uh, and again, I'm not saying I wish any ill on Christopher Tolkien. I'm not even no, sure no. that I would want to see Silmarillion films necessarily, as that would be really, really challenging in some ways that The Lord of the Rings uh, and The Hobbit are not. Um, but anyway... Um, Okay, but, so, but that's but, the answer. That's well, the short answer. That's the sh- but there is potentially again. You've got all that appendix A stuff. Um, yeah, could he go in and do? Because he mentioned that he made some allusion to something like this um, earlier on, some kind of a bridge film, basically that would go between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, Uh-oh. There's all of this stuff in Appendix A about not only about the history of Gondor, but also specifically about the early career of Aragorn. Um, which has some pretty exciting stuff in it, though the story is very sketchy. I mean, we'll get in a couple pages. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, where we have his early rivalry with Denethor and he, he fights as a general in, in the wars of Minas Tirith, uh, and, uh, leads this like secret sneak attack by night that like semi miraculously saves them, uh, from their, you know, from their enemies from Umbar who are coming up from the south. Uh, and then okay. in the moment of victory when they're, you know, they're wanting to parade him back into the city, uh, he, he leaves, you know, he says, no, 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 I'm not going to return to Minas Tirith. Uh, I'm, my work here is done and I'm going to ride off into the sunset. Uh, and does, <laughs> um, uh, and you know he rode with the with the Rohirrim during the time of Aemir's dad, Aemond, and oh, got to right. him then. So you know there there are several places, and again like the so the, the, uh, there are a couple sort of seeds that one could imagine. Right. There's half story. there's half told stories yeah, in the appendices about him. Um, okay. Interesting. I mean, I don't know what kind. I mean, because that stuff's all in the appendices, it is therefore 
technically fair game. Um, goodness knows there are other stories in the appendices that could be really interesting. I don't know if he would ever tell them if they would sort of, uh, sort of be feature film worthy. Um, but, uh, some, so a lot, lot, lot of Shire history. People Shire sitting around in the Shire just growing, growing plants. And, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, that would be awesome. Like, <laughs> it would be so awesome just to find out what's that one guy who delivers the mail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's just follow that guy as he discovers all the pubs in, <laughs> yes. in the Shire. Yes, exactly. Yes. The new feature film, a pub crawl through the Shire. That's basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be, that would be gripping theater right there. Uh, Corey. Yeah. I just I want to I want to have you back, um, not in a year and a half. Okay. okay. But it has been an hour, so I thought uh, I thought what we'll do is we'll leave him wanting more. Okay. And um and so, definitely when the next the next movie comes out, but maybe 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 if there's if there's anything you want to talk about, we can do that. But people should definitely go to MythGuard.org and take classes, uh, with Tom Shippey and 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 a, and, and other great, uh, people and um. And then, and listen to Tolkien Professor, which, uh, quite honestly, is the only other podcast I listen to. It's very, <laughs> very sad. Honored. I'm very but honored. But you're honored, but I, you're honored, and I wish. Um, but thank you so much for being on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Always fun to talk to you. Well, that show was awesome. Let's do the credits. Patrick Brady, he fixes the audio every week. He also does the teaser videos on YouTube. So Patrick Brady is an awesome guy, and I thank him for his work. Mike Rickberg sang the song you heard at the beginning, composed and sang it with his girlfriend Sarah. He's going to sing in about a heartbeat for uh, the Mexican hat dance. And Vilmos fixes my website, JackieCation.com. So support him and his work. Thanks a lot, you guys. Take care out there. Bye. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat. <laughs> my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh my god. Thank we, you. why don't we just call that as the end of the show?